But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. Hi, Callie. Hey, Michelle. We're going to do like the Clintons um, Boys on the Tracks episode. This is our, this is our take, this is take two. Take two. You know, uh, first is the worst, second is the best. I've known that since I was a child. <laughs> it was an intuitive sense that I had. Yeah, it was a psychic it's download. True. My first psychic download. <laughs> Okay, so when we talked about the Bush family, we talked about them being a dynasty because they go so far back. So legacy planning, we can take it back to Ashmael Bush in the white supremacist state of Oregon. He's a banker. He's an oil guy back then. He's uh, He does all the things, real estate, churches, I think he's involved in. Like He does all the things that you're going to need to do to be to set up a dynasty family in um in a in a country like that like america so we you know they go all the way back like that and prescott which is um poppy bush's father he definitely had at least like five generations you know vision for the family dynasty and that's oh, really yeah. what right and that's you know one of the one of poppy's kids was going to be president no matter which one of them it was it was going to be one of them you know um, so they, 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 they can be architects in a way that I think, you know, some, a lot of us can't possibly understand as we've discussed before, but the Clintons now are a little bit different. They're privileged people. Let's not, you know, misunderstand. They're coming from affluent, privileged backgrounds. They both go to Yale. They're both Yale graduates. Oh um, God. Right. I know. Right. So they're, they're privileged. I don't want, we don't want to pretend like they're not privileged, but they are not. I mean, like, um, Bill Clinton was actually born Bill Blythe Clinton. He was adopted by his stepfather. So Blythe is actually his birth father, um, which I was just driving. I just drove through Arkansas, little nub of Arkansas that I drive through between on my way to um, New Orleans, which I've done for years. I've made that drive for almost 30 years. And, uh, but I never really noticed Blytheville before, but this time on my way through both times, I'm like, Blytheville, Blytheville, I drive right past this little exit. So that's like, so my point being is that Bill Clinton is like, he, he you know, he was born into something. He's got Blythe, yeah. you know, right. Is Not part of the baby. Arkansas. Yeah, he's, yes, thank you. That is what I am trying to say. He is a Nepo baby, um, <laughs> by, uh, by sperm donor. And then also by, um, then the Clinton family name is also a thing too. And we'll get into that. And there's Roger Clinton, who's his half brother, who is, does actually, is actually a, um, convicted, um, prior to all of these doings that we're going to talk about today with Bill Clinton as governor in Arkansas, 
Um, you have Roger Clinton who actually did some prison time for, uh, for cocaine charges. So it's already like all in the family. That's all I'm wow. saying. <laughs> I know, right? They were, you know, like when the Bush family's like, "Can you move some cocaine for us?" Bill Clinton was like, "Can I move some cocaine?" You bet. <laughs> Why? Yes, I can. Yeah. Why? Yes, yes I, I can. I actually yeah. do know how to do that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so. <clears throat> So the Clintons, however, no matter how like privileged and, and all of these things that are going on, they do have to work them their, their way up in this industry, which is their business. And the industry just really so happens to be like it's. I mean, it's it's the mafia. You know, I mean, these are these are crime families, right? Right. And so, so like where the Bush family is this, you know, huge international crime family. The Clintons are really just coming in, um, are coming in to make a name for themselves, right? And so they're saying, but they know the game. They know the game and they're, and they're like, here's what we can do for you. And so primarily one of the main things that they wind up doing over time is they wind up laundering a lot of money. That winds up being one of the primary things that the Clinton, that the Clintons do is they launder a lot of money. But as they're working through the money laundering segment, but as they're working their way up in the industry, they are smuggling cocaine, basically, um, out of Arkansas. So that's what we're going to talk about today with this Boys on the Track story. But they become, I call them a crime syndicate because what winds up happening is they start at this relatively entry level position of um, being cocaine smugglers in Arkansas mm -hmm. for right for the CIA, the Bush family, same diff. Um, that's where they start, and they build over time in through the Bush family to where they have their own standing at this point, particularly with the Clinton um, uh, Foundation, where they continue to launder money for <laughs> really dangerous people. Right now, they're doing it right now. Little Billy Clinton, Hillary's in there like, you better watch that money, Billy. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's how they become their own network. And as they as they go along, they, you know, they slather their own palms. What? I don't know what I'm saying. They uh, Slather <laughs> their own palms. No, I like that. <laughs> slather their own palms with that money, money <laughs> grease. Yeah. Yeah. And so, they, and so, so now they have their own people. And like, I mean, another distinction that I would make also is like, um, whereas the Bush family will, when they need a hit, you know, kind of when they need a hit on somebody, they are going to call like somebody who brokers hits. Like they don't, right. they don't call, they don't call their own hitmen. That's that would be like super beneath the Bush family, right? And also, like they don't ever get their name that close to anything, right? That's part of the, that's part of why they're so why they're able to be so powerful because mm -hmm. they can real they slip around right directly behind what they're doing because they got those slapped on those greasy greasy <laughs> pops. They do. They're all lathered up. They're lathered from head to toe. They're so oh slippery, right? <laughs> Where, but the Clintons, though, that would be somebody. And I'm not saying that the Clintons brokered hits for Bush. Let's. I'm just saying it would be possible. That's the type of job that an early Clinton would do they would actually you know what i mean be the one to make the call to the actual killer that's all i'm saying they that's the level 
you can see this in your own industries the way that you have to yeah. come up in an industry and you can understand the power difference in the chain of command of something like that and again this is my own theory this is my own imagination this is me just trying to um, elucidate why I find these two families different or why I'm referring to them differently one is a dynasty and one as a crime syndicate so Roger so we're we're in 1982 right now and this is this year that um, we mentioned before that Bill Clinton takes the, that gap time those two years where he's not governor of Arkansas so we've got him in there from like 79 to 81 and then he comes back in 83 to 93 right so that's as many years I think as you can be a governor is 12 years so there's a reason probably speculation wild speculation but there's a reason probably not that wild I mean it's not that wild it really isn't <laughs> well once you put everything on the guy I mean what is your excuse for that he's like I just lost and it's like eh, I don't know it's just like I uh, was backpacking around Europe yeah, <laughs> which I just recently found out usually does not involve a backpack. Did you know that? <laughs> no, wait, what do you mean? Well, apparently when people say they're backpacking around Europe, they just mean they have a train pass. Okay. I didn't know. I, I read it. I like read it on Twitter or something. <laughs> yeah, wow. Right, it's where I get, Learn something get, new every day. Well, it's where I get all my information about right. the upper classes. I'm like, oh, 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 you Oh, you're not like camping. Wow. <laughs> right, I know, right? You're not hitchhiking. Like you have like your dad's credit card and like Right. <laughs> okay. Very, okay, I yeah. get it. I, yeah. I just found out. It's okay. Wow. Um hope y'all are having fun. Um, so thank you. Um, Clinton is we don't know what he's doing. Cocaine. Other than that, we don't know. And so he's off for a couple of years as governor of Arkansas. And it's also the same year that uh, CIA director William Casey starts Operation Black Eagle, which is coming out of, remember at this time, um, Poppy is vice president in the Bush, Reagan, Thatcher White House. And he is running the Contras because he's really a CIA guy. We know all of this. So, so yep. William Casey starts the Black Eagle out of Poppy's office. And what Black Operation Black Eagle is, is as we explained in the last episode, it's how Iran-Contra worked. So if you don't know how Iran-Contra, how that functioned, and it's very confusing, that's what we talked about in the last episode. So go listen to that. And that's Operation Black Eagle because all of this was always illegal. It was always illegal even if it was going through the White House. It was always illegal. They did, that White House we know for sure, did so many illegal things. The Promis computer system and, and all of these things. So the Contras were always illegal and it was always this um, Operation Black Eagle. So that same year, Billy's on break. Black Eagle goes into effect. And this is when enter the picture a man named Barry Seal. When Barry Seal moves his drug smuggling operation from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Ooh, Arkansas. Yes. Go Louisiana. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Barry Seal uh, is a drug smuggler and he calls himself the fat man. That is his um, 
That's his handle, you know, because they're in these little airplanes. You got a picture That's of this. That's so Baton Rouge also. I just... You can see all these other Louisiana men are like, I, you don't get to be the fat man. How do you get to be the fat man? Yeah, I'm like, why don't I get man? to be the fat man? Because <laughs> that's what I'm thinking to myself right now. So imagine, though, too, you know, in our imagination, like these little these little airplanes, these little Cessnas. If you've never been in a little airplane like that, and I mean, like, if you hate flying, you're definitely going to you're going to hate it more in a small airplane. But these little Cessnas and these little, um, are these small jets, sometimes they're running Lear jets. Those planes are really, really fun. They're ex extremely fun to be You've been in one? My father flew Lear jets. Oh, whoa, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I've been in all, and Cessnas, so I've been in lots of little airplanes. Wow, I don't think, yeah. I don't think that's for me. I, no thanks. Because I've just heard yeah. about so many scary plane crashes that happen in little planes. Here's Barry Seal, and he's like he's flying these um he's flying these little planes, which, like I say, is very exciting. Um, the FBI and all of these agencies that wind up eventually investigating Barry Seal, they can never really figure out exactly how many planes he even has. So he has many of them, and they can't even they can't even ever really figure it out. This guy loves being a criminal, like Bobby Barry Seal is very much the kind of that kind of anti-hero where like and you can listen to him talk about himself on youtube and you can't there's just something about barry seal because he's like look i loved it i loved it i loved people trying to kill me i loved running from the cops i loved doing drugs i lo i loved it he moves his business from like i said baton rouge louisiana to mana arkansas he will claim himself, and there's no reason to think that this isn't true, between his operation in Baton Rouge and the operation that he moves to Maine, Arkansas, um, he will later say that he, for, he, did, he was a drug runner for 10 years. This makes my heart beat so fast because this is so much drugs, and this is just one of their smugglers, mind you. Like, they have yeah. other... This is just one guy. Yeah, it's a lot of drugs. It's a lot it's of a drugs. Lot of cocaine. It's like, it's a crazy amount when you really think about it. So, he says that for 10 years, he made 10 runs per year of... With loads between six to 1,200 pounds of cocaine. My, Ooh, they partying in Maynard. I mean, I mean, like just saying that, like my, I have like my whole body is just like tingling. Like it's just like it's just so much stress and fear and just like that's so much drugs and that's one fucking smuggler, right? You know, yeah, I guess it's not stressful if you're having the time of your fucking mm -hmm. life because you live to drug smuggle. Yes. Exactly. And that's why Barry Seal is like, woohoo, do it again, 10 out of 10, you know, and eventually, yeah. right, eventually, you know, he was murdered, but I have to like, I mean, if you listen to him talk, he says it a couple of times that you have to anticipate that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> right. right oh my god you know and i mean self-aware if you're like you know what i could right. just take all of this money and go do whatever after you've spent all this time being high as a kite like whatever going wherever you want laying in the sun fucking chicks doing drugs people are after you that adrenaline like what i don't know you love it you, you love, love it everybody's chasing you 
<laughs> like it sounds fun if you can like customize the world <laughs> yeah. like, let me just remove right. the fact that we're you know funding a cia coup and then i can just enjoy flying my silly little plane totally. feeling like i'm living dangerously and fucking chicks You are listening to Secret Antenna, a completely unfunded podcast that we do for free. We made a Patreon to help us buy books and equipment, and we post full-length bonus episodes on there, mostly about topics we get a little more wacky on. Access to all of our content starts at a dollar a month, and you can subscribe at patreon.com slash secretantenna establishes Mana essentially as the as the center of the of the Iran Contras, like the center well. the exchange center. It's the exchange center. Like guns and weapons weapons and drugs are being exchanged at a variety of points to do Iran Iran Contras. Um, but this is the main place. <clears throat> this is where they're doing it. And so uh, as the governor of Arkansas Bill Clinton is allowing this to happen. This is the, the Mana Intermountain Airport, which is where this is happening. It's a small plane airport. It's a small hangar. And again, I do have personal I do have personal contact with these kinds of spaces because of of what I was exposed to growing up. Yeah, that's and so wild. These, right. So these small plane airports, they're way out there. Like you go, like you you go way out. You'll go, you know, you'll drive for forty minutes, and there won't be anything. You know, there's yeah. not like a gap. You know, right? Because it's an it's it's an airport. You know, so you go out there, you go way out there, and the only reason anybody's out there is to go to the airport. Like anybody driving by, if you don't have business at the airport, like why are you there? You're not. You're not. Yeah. And and then you know, there's these big open hangars. There's usually only a few people around. You don't need a lot. I mean, like. What is a hangar? It's a garage for airports. You know, like you don't yeah. need like tons of fucking people hanging out at a parking lot. How many people are at other parking lots? Like one fucking dude. Like, yeah, your shit's parked over there. You know, like it's right. that's really right, you know? So like so there's a lot of privacy around an airport like this as long as the government isn't looking. And that is what Bill Clinton made sure was not happening so anyway that's <sighs> right so these made you know, a 12 whole career off of not yeah. looking at stuff yeah <laughs> i did well and then two hillary is working for rose law firm who like i've, I've said before becomes a uh, very prominent in money laundering and in whitewater and 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 like money laundering is also a huge part of um, this early Iran Iran Contra stuff. Most of it is guns and, and drugs. So you still you don't have tons of cash, but there's there's cash. They're cutting their teeth on laundering money during this time too. I mean, again, theory, but it's my theory. It's my thought. Um, so you know, twelve hundred pounds of drugs come into Mena, and weapons are loaded into this airplane. Again, I want us to picture this, like. We're not talking about 38 specials, you know, like we're, these are missiles. They're getting missiles. They're getting, you know, these military um, guns that, you know, that have the rounds that have, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, 500 rounds a piece in them or whatever, you know, right? Like 
these are like these are these are they're hand grenades. These are weapons of war, just to be very specific. And they're loading them back up on these planes and taking them to um, they're taking them to Nicaragua, or they're taking where they're or they're taking them to Honduras, where they're arming the Contras who are fighting um, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And that's what's happening in little old sleepy Arkansas under Bill Clinton's watch. With Hillary Clinton helping, she's you know, she's a lawyer, and you have you know, and she's a um, at that time, I'm pretty sure she's a prosecutor. I mean, I think she's always been a prosecutor. So like that's also really helpful to have what an on asshole. your side. She's what sucks. an asshole, totally. Um, oh, totally. She's such a total asshole. So um, so yeah. So you know, it's all in the family down there. Um, all right, so this is from a book, one of the books, the two books that we're talking about today is uh, The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, The Unreported Stories, which is by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who he is, it was published in 1997, and he is, Ambrose Evans Pritchard is a Brit. He is, he was a foreign correspondent, um, uh, he was bureau chief for the Sunday Telegraph which is one of their main papers over there, and especially at the end of the 90s. That's People still widely read newspapers at the end of the 90s, and so that was probably a pretty big deal. But he's a Tory, you know, he's, he's right-wing, and so like, there definitely is a part in here. Like, he's not right-wing the way people are right-wing in America today. This is like some old-school, like, stuff, but he, even in this book, though, you know where they sound slightly more reasonable, you know, they just kind of sound like they don't want to pay taxes, and you're like, well, I can appreciate that. Like, they don't, you know, like, you right. don't feel, like, right? You're not like, good God, you're a monster, you know? No, I know, like, um, when Alex Jones is like, we should be able to, you know, not have the government invade our property, and I'm like, like that's what he was like that's kind of what he like built his platform on and i'm like yeah i could see how people would go for that but you know you're uh the craziest person that's ever lived so so there's that there is evidence this is cia's base of operations was in arkansas and governor bill clinton was actually involved like he's making sure that his government doesn't see what's happening in maine but he does it's not even like it's not even like he's sort of semi-aware that there might be some, hmm, maybe some strange things are happening over there. You could get a lot done in politics by only knowing a very little bit, right? Right, right, I don't, right. And, right? Turn, and just not looking into things, you know? Right, exactly. And then, too, when you're on the stand, if somebody's asking you, you're like, you know, actually, I don't know. You actually don't. Isn't yeah. that great? Yep. <laughs> but you're all fulfilling the the ends of this project. So, But in Bill Clinton, the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's I don't think that's the case with Bill Clinton here. I think he was very hands-on uh, about his involvement in the Contras. And I think that if when we look at it from the perspective of this is a businessman who is working his way up in his industry when we look at it that way and his industry is the mafia it's organized crime right. then right then you understand why it's important for him to have a hands-on involvement in the wrong contrast all right so this is i'm going to read a couple of things here from pritchard's book so he says um it is precisely because Mena turns the world upside down that it matters so much. If true, it validates an inchoate suspicion felt by many Americans 
but things are not what they seem. It suggests that the political rhetoric of the two parties in Washington is mere window dressing, while the real decisions are made in secret collusion without democratic accountability. To examine MANA is to examine the institutional condition of the United States. As for the president, it exposes him as a remarkable counterfeit, willing to betray his liberal principles for self-advancement. Um, yep. Yes. I mean, period. Yes. That's kind of America's whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, it is. And that's why I love that sentence to examine MANA is to examine the institutional condition of the United States. I agree with him on that as well. Um, you know, when you really like, you really start to think about this little cocaine airport, um, really being, right, being kind of where that's where all of your politics are really being generated from. Like, that's really like scary. Like, that's over, quote unquote, but we're just in the following stages of it. Nothing, all of these things just open doors into the next thing. Yeah. You know, this the Contra opens up, you know, Oklahoma City bombing opens up 9-11, you know, like, it, you know, it just, it all it opens up to Trump. You know, all of these are gates that opened along the way to put us here, to put us where we are. Gates of hell. Oh, it is the gates of hell. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, God. Okay, how many? <laughs> oh my how many do we have before we're at the center i don't know because david uh, koresh is dead and he's the only one oh. who would have fucking known the answer i want to read a little bit more from um ambrose pritchard and he says uh it was the political left that first became excised about me they were alerted when a Fairchild C-123 military transport was shot down in Nicaragua on October 5th, 1986. The plane had been used earlier by cocaine smuggler Berryman Adler Seal, Barry Seal, who based his fleet of aircraft at Mena. So when this, when this, this military plane went down it was it wound up being connected to barry seal and so people knew about it they knew that there was a problem and according to pritchard he just wants to point out in his own book right since he's a tory he's like actually you let you democrats are the ones that like figured it out first so don't don't be mad at me <laughs> i think that's kind of funny my big takeaway from this is that barry is short for barry yeah it is barry meant yeah, Berryman Adler Seal. Oh, I see, like, all the time. Yeah, maybe you're right. Wow. I never thought about it either. I wow. thought Barry was a name name. Me too. So outside of Mena, 98 miles away, so it would take you two hours and eight minutes um, to get to Saline County from Mena Airport. Um and that's in like to bring this up also in this story that I'm about to tell because I'm about to talk about a story called Boys on the Tracks, which is the other book by Ma uh, Mara Le Leverett. Mara Leverett, Boys on the Tracks. Um, this is well, also from the early 90s, I think is when the book is written. And so this is the story that we're about to tell about these two teenagers. And so then also for my own way of like looking at this, like, like like one of the kids who dies in this story was 17 the other one was 16 and this would be the same summer when i was 15. so i was their age and i was roughly about six and a half hours away by driving yeah 
right so it's like it's like i feel it's like i similar. have right like i feel like i have a real familiarity with what their lives might have been like to even though like i grew up urban and they're a little bit more rural like just looking at pictures of them i'm like oh i know we had like the same metallica albums and like right. whatever like you know talked about the same things while we like smoked pot at the park or whatever so what happens in this little town saline county is the official story is actually really impossible to believe but what happened was um two teenage boys were run over by had lain down on the tracks and were run over uh by a train and killed by a train and so the official story was that they um that they had smoked this high-powered weed um so they either they smoked one and a half joints but it was this some kind of crazy special like high-powered weed that meant that that one and a half joint that they smoked was this the equivalent of 20 joints which <laughs> got them so high um that they decided to commit suicide by lying down on the tracks perfectly aligned with each other perfectly straight and they had their head like inside the tracks and their legs over the other end perfectly straight perfectly aligned and they and they pulled the tarp up over themselves and they laid down on the tracks to kill themselves because um I don't know. I guess they wanted Very to die like in this Heaven's week. Gate sounding. Very Heaven's Gate sounding. So yeah. So whatever. These two like teenage like boys like women. I just it's so ridiculous. And then so of course too you know you got all these people who are like you know look you know like I hate to like out myself here but like I've actually smoked twenty joints before. <laughs> no. Right. You know or like whatever you really can't. I mean it's like a that's so many joints but you have all these potheads that are out there like you just like you just lose interest before you smoke twenty joints probably yeah, you like just, that like, just fall asleep. You just fall asleep and then also like no so like you just none of this what you're saying doesn't make sense like smoking getting too stoned you know doesn't make you do that that's not really what you do at all right so um so anyway you know and and really and now really anybody knows that but back then you might have needed a few pot because like here's the other thing to keep in mind climate uh social climate wise this is the um this is happening summer of 88 i hadn't said this before it was august 23rd 1988 is when this actual train thing happened so this is like dare program the white house's dare to stay off drugs nancy riggins dare program yes. is in full swing like they're anti like man you smoke one joint it's by it's like reefer madness you know like which was like if you've never seen reefer madness it like it's this 1938 like film where smoking weed turns you into like a sex fiend or whatever yes. like it's hilarious you know but like the reagan white house's dare program was no different it was honestly it was just like different versions of reefer madness i swear to god that whole program was so dumb yeah. and but this was its height <clears throat> like this was its this was its height and so to come out with this story at this particular time it just went along with everything what people were hearing this devil weed this devil's lettuce you know like oh god you get these free joints in your heavy metal albums or whatever right um and look what it does to your kids so anyway that's all going along with this but even so even with that climate this was hard for people to swallow most most people were like you know none of this sounds right as much as like 
as much as I'm judgmental as people might have been, it didn't really sound right to anyone. So, um, one of the stories that you can read that's just really harsh about it too is the, um, you know, the train operators, the train engineers coming around the bin and, um, you know, they see what's about to happen and uh, there's nothing they can do. And uh, their story is really terrible. And one of the guys says, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you got one person passes out on the tracks. Maybe they don't rouse at all. Maybe. But two of them, you know, this is a train engineer. And he's, you know, he's just saying, like, you don't understand. Like, you can hear if you're on the tracks, like, you can, you can tell the train is coming from just, you know, miles and miles and miles away yeah. and you know and right and they're blowing the horn and the light and all of this i mean like like you have to be something is wrong you're not passed out drunk you're yeah, not you're dead <laughs> you're dead and the other thing was that there was a gun that they saw there was a rifle that was next to the bodies and um that the train guys all they all saw it anyway they saw the gun and then also the gun this long rifle was in pictures that the police had but it never made it into evidence and people have pointed out they're like it's right there i can see it on the truck I, you have it that's you cops have it where did it go they're just why like, is it know. not in evidence yeah basically cool. so the train guys saw it and then you can see it in pictures but the cops say they never had it and so um you know which is like fucked up right um <clears throat> so what winds up happening obviously is these boys are killed on the track so what people and um that story makes no sense the official story makes no sense um the medical examiner is extraordinarily compromised um the stories about that particular medical examiner are insane. Um, but a lot of times, um, they're just ludicrous. And oh, a right. Lot there of was times, something in the documentary that was like, he found a dude decapitated and listed it as like an accidental death yeah. or a natural cause or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, man, yes. you got to do your job a little better than he that. Just, like, right. He is... You know, yeah, he had this whole track record of these type of rulings, you know, and in the end, he's working for the Clinton crime family or the Clinton crime syndicate. You know, I mean, that's what's happening. And so I bet this guy covers up a lot of their murders because the Clintons have a have a kill list that's like pretty extraordinary. Like that's not untrue. We're going to wind up probably doing a whole episode on the Clinton kill list because they just do. Um, so he's working for them, obviously, but he has all kinds of sketchy, you know, things that have happened. And even somebody that, like you mentioned, and even somebody that worked for him during this case came out later. And, you know, it's always difficult because like, like we know that people like people are weird and they're people, human beings are just very strange. And they'll be like, and we know that they'll come up and they'll be like, I did it. I was me. I don't know. I was having a bad day. I killed all those kids. And you're like, John, go home. You know, like, you know, like he didn't do it or whatever. So like the people are weird yeah. and they'll admit to things. And there's reasons that people say things that they didn't do or, or whatever. Um, but for the most part, you know, I mean, we got to take, you got to listen to what people are saying when you're looking into these things and just be like, well, they, this person did say that. And if it ever gets corroborated, then there you go. Um, so, and so somebody that worked for the medical examiner at the time who worked on these bodies, 
um, claimed to have said, um, there's a stab wound. Do you want me to do something about that or whatever? You know, you want me to record that or whatever? You want me to look at it? And the, the medical examiner was like, no, it's fine. So, <laughs> like, so they're a parent. No, it's it's chill. You've never seen a kid <laughs> die from a weed overdose? Right, that's not, weed yeah. caused that stab wound. It was the marijuana. Um, but there's other, like, apparently, you know, who, other people who did look at the, they did list things, you know, so apparently you can even go through the medical records and be like, what are all these, there's all these bruises and things that are listed, right? So it seems pretty clear that they were beaten and killed, you know, before they were put on the tracks. So what happened? So the theory that winds up being, like, probably what really happened is about 400 feet away from the, um, railroad tracks is a field where it's at least you have other witnesses uh from the inside of this of the of the crimes that were going on the drug smuggling and also people in the town who will say that there were drug drops being made in this field which is like what you see in movies it's little parachutes on box what people think happened is that the boys were out there for whatever reason and i think that several reasons can all be true at once like um they could just be out there because that's where they went to smoke pot and then they're like hey what is that and then they got killed um they could have been heard uh, in the town hey you have you heard they're doing these drug drops out here in the field and just wanted to go see it you know they're teenagers they could be going out there you know they're not in their mind they're not like this is how the Iron Contras are being funded. Like, that's not what they're thinking, you know? So you could, and they're boys. And so you could even, who knows? Maybe they're like, we're going to steal the drug drop and sell it. You know, who fucking knows? But any of those things could get them killed. What comes out later, it's not till a couple years later, there was another, at least one other teenager out there with them, another boy, um, who a couple years later comes forward because he had like left town, right? He went on the run. And he came forward, or whatever, maybe not, maybe on the run's an extreme, but he left town. He must have told his parents or something, and they left. Um, but he came out a couple years later and was like, look, I was there, and I can tell you who else I saw there before I ran. And that's Dan Harmon. So he pegs this guy, Dan Harmon, who is the, um, he is the district attorney for Mena. And he, he launders a lot. I don't know if you call it laundry, but he fixes a lot of cases and he works again. He's part of the Clinton crime syndicate. And so this kid fingers Harmon and says, for sure, I know that Harmon was there with some other people, but it was definitely him. And, um, this kid winds up dead. Wow. Short, shortly after this. So this is a couple years later. He finally came forward. I mean, I don't, it would be, I don't know how you go on with your life. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think he didn't, didn't, you know, I don't know. You'd have to come forward. Probably most people would. A lot of people would. Um, and then he's dead. I'm, you know, to me, I'm just like, oh, no. Huh. No. Mm-hmm. Not sus. Too sus. Too sus. There are other people who come forward in this that are witnesses to this night in the field. They're all dead. There's six of them. Like I said, we're going to go over this in the Kill List episode. They're all dead. So... Yeah, I don't know. How is, I, I don't, I can't really finish sentences on that. How do you have this thing, all these people come forward and say they saw this thing and then they're all dead. 
I mean, it hap- it's yeah. happening today with, like, Black Lives Matter protests. Like, so oh, many yeah. of those, mm-hmm. like, protest organizers are just, like, assassinated. It's just assassinations yep. to cover up crimes. So Charlene Wilson uh, worked for, um, she worked for the Mana, she worked for the airport. She worked for the Mana Intermountain Airport. So she was also a very avid um, user of drugs, and she also did direct smuggling with them. She didn't just organize smuggling, she did pickups and drop-offs, and she was, she was a girl boss. Her time is for drug trafficking and other, um... Um, and interfering with uh, law enforcement. Oh, yeah, interfering with them. Wow. Right, I know, right? Because they were, like, trying so hard to stop it. (laughs) All this drug dealing. So, this field, just to be clear, is on its way. It's 100 miles from Mena, and it's one of the places where they were dropping... They would drop various types of various um, weights of drugs... Uh, Charlene Wilson in particular will talk about sometimes picking up like five or ten pounds, right? But then she'll also say it was as big as a bale of hay and I would have trouble lifting it sometimes um, from this field and from other places, I guess. She would sometimes pick up these drops. So I'm assuming that this is, again, my theory. Why do this? Um, I, I, have, I have three things, three reasons why I think you might do this. Um, it's a really efficient way to make drops to police um in these towns to distribute like because that's who's distributing you know as as the crack uh starts getting made and the cocaine the distributors are police that's how this is happening so it's a really efficient way to just drop your off to your uh lower level dealers right makes sense to me that could be one reason another reason is that like you as a smuggler whether you're Bar- barry seal or like whoever um maybe you've decided you're gonna skim a little bit and you're dropping to your people i don't really think that's what's happening but that could be a reason um another reason might be as much as like the mana airport is protected it actually just is so much fucking drugs that it actually makes sense to make drops along the way just to like lighten what you're actually bringing like bringing into mana those could all be reasons to make these drops yeah so use your use your imagination on that but those are my thoughts on it it makes sense to me that these drops are being made for any number of reasons um so this is charlene wilson talking about what she did and she'd say, I, she says, I'd pick up the pallets and make the run down to Texas. The drop-off was at the Cowboys Stadium. I was told that nobody would ever bother me, and I was never bothered. If there was a problem, I was to call Dan Harmon, who I mentioned before, but I'm going to read another little piece real quick here about Dan Harmon. So this is a little, this is a paragraph that's about Dan Harmon. The tremor hit on June 11th, 1997, when a Little Rock jury convicted Dan Harmon on five counts of racketeering, extortion, and drug dealing. It meant nothing to the political classes in Washington, but those who understood the nexus of relationships in Arkansas saw it very differently. Harmon was one of the commissioners who had enforced a politicized criminal justice system during the tenure of Governor Clinton. Now a jury of Arkansans had found him guilty of running his 7th Judicial District Prosecuting Attorney's Office as, quote, a criminal enterprise for six years and, quote, demanding money in return for dropping charges. Ooh. 
Yeah. So Dan Harmon wound up getting in a lot of trouble. So again, these things are corroborated, right? So like Charlene and Dan both got in trouble. So, um, but she was supposed to call Dan if there was any problem with her smuggling. So a lot of the, a lot of the cocaine that came into Mena was taken up to Springdale in Northwest Arkansas, she said, where it was stuffed into chickens for reshipment to the rest of the country. We're going to do a Patreon about Tyson chicken. Um, but that is, uh, Tyson chicken, the guy who runs that company, Dan Tyson, I think his name is drug runner, drug smuggler, more mafia dudes. And, uh, and they were actually smuggling, um, cocaine in chickens, both chicken carcasses and also live chickens. Yeah. And then so, once we talk about that on Patreon, everybody will get the meme that you posted last month. Yeah. <laughs> because I just got it the other day after we initially recorded this episode. I was like, oh, now I get the meme. You're like, oh, yeah. I didn't know that Tyson was smuggling drugs inside yeah. their, their chickens. Wow. They were. And what's fascinating, too, is because I was like, wait, what? And uh, I looked into this a little bit more. And something that's funny, too, is apparently the um, at the time that they were doing this cocaine smuggling in, the, in these chickens, Tyson chicken, they had, there was some kind of, um, you know, the statistics, somebody put the statistics together on it. And at that time, half 50% of Americans were eating between one to three pieces of Tyson chicken a week. Yeah, that's crazy. I just, <laughs> it's crazy. I yeah. just, oh my god okay i mean just literally just built on cocaine i mean for a long time i thought it was just miami but it's the whole fucking play it's the whole fucking country <laughs> it's so bad um so uh but she had another job we're back to charlene wilson uh which she revealed to me two years later when we were allowed to meet and talk in relative privacy at the prison library this is ambrose pritchard um, this time she was trembling with emotion, giving free rein to the terrible remorse that had been eating at her for nine years. She used to pick up cocaine deliveries on the railway tracks near the little town of Alexander, 30 miles south of Little Rock. Every two weeks for years, I'd go to the tracks, I'd pick up the package, and I'd deliver it to Dan Harmon, either straight to his office or to my house. Sometimes it was flown in by air. Sometimes it would be kicked out of the train. A big bundle, two feet by one and a half feet, like a bale of hay. So heavy, I'd have trouble lifting it. Roger the Dodger picked it up a few times. You know what? I wonder if Roger the Dodger is Roger Clinton. I'm not sure. We'll put a pin Whoa. in that. Um, it Whoa. just hit me when I read it. I wonder. I wonder if I can Google it on my phone. I probably <laughs> not, Google it. But... See it? See if you can... Who is Roger the Dodger? Um, back in the summer of 1987, one of the drops disappeared. And I'm sorry, I think I said 90... I think I said 88 earlier, but the boys were killed in 87. I was 15 in 87. Yes, it was, it was August 23rd, 1987. So according to Charlene Wilson, she says, but in the summer of 1987, one of the drops disappeared. So let's see what she says Danny Boy did. Furious, Harmon brought out some of his men to watch the delivery on the night of August 22nd. They were expecting a delivery of three to four pounds of cocaine and five pounds of weed. Charlene was supposed to make the pickup that night, but she had been highballing. 
a mixture of cocaine and crystal meth. And was totally, I know, I mean, Charlene, damn. And was totally, quote unquote, strung out. This is, I mean, and I can imagine this too. They told her to wait in the car, which was parked off Quarry Road. It was around midnight. This is horrifying. But she was like, it was scary. I was high, very high. Yeah. I was told to, yeah, I was told to sit there and they'd be back. It seemed forever. I fucking bet it did. <laughs> I heard two trains. <laughs> then I heard some screams, loud screams. It, it, she stammered, breaking into uncontrollable tears. She never did finish that sentence. Whoa. Charlene feels like shit. Okay, so, yeah, well, to wrap up, there's just a couple of folks I want, a couple of people I want to talk about here who, like, for, oh, just, this is an interesting thing. Um... They're one of the train engineers, his last name is Schroyer, and he talks about, um, this is wild because, uh, Ives, the, uh, Kevin Ives, who's one, of, it's Don Henry and Kevin Ives were the names of the boys on the tracks. It's this, since we do, when we do this twice, it sometimes can be hard, like, I, you know, you feel like you said things that, um, that you didn't say in this recording. So, um, but, so Ives, his father was um a train engineer actually and this was his route right and so oh right yeah, that's so right. crazy it's so crazy so about two months before he got changed out in the route like i don't i'm not given to understand that there was any specific reason for that other than um train companies will change up their engineers sometime so the guy schroyer who had taken his place that's an interesting position because this guy, you know, like he went through this thing that I'm sure, you know, you'd prefer not to go through, which is like running over this kid. But then too, he's like, I'm glad it was me and not his father. Like, it would just be like a really weird position to be in, you know, to be like, I guess I'm glad. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, it's just that he's, but he's thought about it a lot because otherwise, I mean, just by fate, just by luck, just by spinning the wheel. It wasn't this kid's own father who ran over him. Right. That would have been I mean, a million times worse. Oh I my guess. god. It's I mean, just it's like, already horrible, you know, but that would have been... It's so horrible. Beyond. Yeah. I mean, and the father actually does say at some point, because he can't ever really stop thinking about it either. Right. You know what I mean? None of, nobody can, you know, like for him and for the guy that took his place... I don't, you'd have to be thinking about that kind of like every second of every day for the rest of your life. Like, I don't know how you'd be able to put that out of your mind. Cause it's just something that's like, it's just so, I don't know. It's just, how could it be? How could that be? You know? Um, but, uh, something that, um, the, uh, Schroyer says, or I guess as a friend of the family says, it's not Schroyer. It's, it's a friend of the family at some point says, um, says, you know, I'm a dentist and you know, what do I teach my kids? I teach them how to take care of my teeth. Right. And you know, he, Larry was an engineer. What would, what would an engineer teach their kids except how to watch out for trains? Right. And just chilling. It's just a chilling observation. Um, so that's, um, Larry Schroyer, uh, was the guy who took over. He's not the one who said the dentist thing. Cause Larry Schroyer is a train engineer. Um, so I wanted to point him out. Um, and also then 
Linda Ives uh, be, is a very interesting person, and she is one. Of, she's um, Kevin Ives' mother, and when she talks about this, you know, she's gone now. We lost her a couple years back, but um, she was an activist for life. I mean, this is what she did forever after, and she, you know, in the beginning, you know, she's just like all I wanted was for them to investigate my son's death I had it wasn't my intention to live this life where I you know reached into like this huge political machine you know like that's not well I'm that's not what this is about because like it didn't take her long to realize like oh you won't investigate my kid because of Bill Clinton because he's like the Clintons are in on this are you kidding me you know and she says something at some point she's like I don't know like we just went to work and came home and went to the ball field and tried to do the best that we could that's what we thought everybody else was doing too Linda fights for the rest of her life to try to handle this and um, it's it's uh, it's a hard life and she doesn't she, she dies of cancer a few years ago I want to read something though from her that is this quote that she has. She says, um, what I want is justice. And it's that simple. Justice is when mistakes are admitted. Justice is when a murder or even the possibility of a murder is given more priority than protecting a fellow state employee's ego. Justice is when investigators look at new evidence in a death from whoever presents it instead of grumbling because they feel they're being second guessed. She continued in what had become to reporters her familiar unvarnished style. There are some good people in law enforcement, but as a whole, it attracts a type of person who likes to wear a gun and doesn't question authority and who doesn't like it when his authority is questioned. That is, was our crime. We question them and that's a no-no, even when what they're saying obviously improvably clashes with common sense yeah yeah she so. is our people because i'm like she yeah, is our same. people yeah exactly totally and it, it gives me a chill every time i read that passage i'm like linda you know that's right right but wears a badge and doesn't question authority i love that she's she's like she is somebody who wants power and doesn't question power like that is a very special kind of person she ain't wrong yep so that's boys on the tracks sad story yeah it's a really sad story and um you know linda may come up again um she's definitely um unfortunately a hero i wish that hadn't like been her life at all but her struggle um her struggle to get to the truth about her son's death is quite honestly and there are other people who struggle don't 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 get it wrong but she was kind of a man eventually the henry family and the ives family they were initially unified in the beginning and then at the end the henry family they they just couldn't do what the ives were doing you know they just they, yeah. i could, which i can understand too but they just they had they were like we just want to take the official story and and grieve like we can't do this you know and right. so that did either way up the like they lost either their sons way. you know right right you know and like i don't really want to fight you know the mafia right. you know and i don't think the ives wanted to either but i think that quote from linda like you just hear the soul in that person and this story is really important i think to getting at what the clintons are all about because like um there is very strong evidence that they're very aware 
of this story and what happened. They're responsible for it. They covered it up. All, all of that. And of course, like, you know, these are just two, two kids, just two teenagers. They're not any more special than any other teenager in the world um, who have also been harmed, murdered, destroyed by the Clintons and other powerful political families, you know. Yeah, but I think it's probably like the early workings of Clintons and Bushes getting involved with each other. So it sets the stage for everything yeah. to come. Everything to come, and it's all bad, you know. Um, it's all yeah. bad. <laughs> it's all bad. It's all bad. Right, and like, and you know, it's just to be clear, you know, the reason the Clintons are so like, imp I mean, important in this too is to stop kind of acting like um, people like. Well, what are they supposed to do? You know, you have all these terrible Republicans or whatever, and it's just like that's. That's a cute story, but that's not how it is. Like, the, the reason that the Clintons, specifically the Clintons, are Democrats is to fulfill the prophecies, the legacies um, laid down by somebody like the Bushes. I mean, the Bushes aren't the only ones. They're in bed with a lot of other people, right? But the Clintons become Democrats. You know, Hillary Clinton's a Barry, a, a Barry Water girl or whatever, a Goldwater girl, they call them um, in the beginning. You know, she's a, she's a prosecutor. She's a Republican. She, you know, whatever. They are Democrats strategically to, to get these bankers plan, this oligarchical plan uh, in, set into stone in this country, which we can see has been accomplished. So their political meaning is, is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, as it usually is, because what makes yeah. the fucking difference? As it usually is. <laughs> well, thanks Sounds so good. much, Michelle. Okay, talk soon. Bye. Bye.